Good morning again. I invite you to take your Bibles and open to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 7. Isaiah 9, 2 through 7, as we continue our series here of Christmas in the Old Testament. And as you make your way there, uh, another thank you to pass along is from Rick Mickish. Hopefully you got the email passing along his email that he sent to Pastor James and I. And he actually called on, on uh, Friday. I was in my office Friday afternoon and I see this phone number pop up my, on my cell phone and it said Ontario, Canada. And generally when I see a number I don't know with a strange location like that, I'm like telemarketer, right? Uh, but I actually answered it and uh, it was Rick. And so I got to talk to him for a little bit and he explained more of what's, uh, what's happening and it's just really neat to see how God is providing. Um, he was talking about the property. It's 200 acres. He says basically there's a mile long or kilometer long, he kept saying, kilometer long dirt road from the highway into the property to the lake and that's it. And so he's excited. He says he's looking forward to butchering some wood and, uh, and developing that, but he just wanted to pass along his thanks to us and to you for partnering with him. So that's, uh, it was good to talk to him. And then just one other thing to encourage you with in the back uh, on the shelf by the bulletin board, there are some new 2023 Bible reading schedules. It's hard to believe in a couple weeks, it'll be 2023. So there are the ones uh, from Faith Baptist Bible College in the, uh, the information hanger on the wall, but then there's uh, some sheets printed out uh, on the, uh, the shelf as well. Uh, just two different ways to read your uh, Bible, different orders and uh, different things like that. So feel free to take one and uh, get started off on the right foot for 2023. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be here and to worship you. Lord, and to reflect on the gift of your son, the gift of heaven. And as we've just sang, Lord, I pray that everyone here would receive that gift if they have not. For those of us who have, who put our faith and trust in Christ, Lord, help us to remain faithful. Help us to continue on in our walk, Lord, as we seek to live for you because of what you've done for us. For those here who do not know Christ, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to their need of a Savior, that you would show them their sin, and that they would confess and repent and turn and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, that gift of heaven that was given so many years ago. Lord, we love you. We pray for our time now in your word. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Hopefully you found your way to Isaiah chapter 9. It's page 573 in the Pew Bible. Let's follow along, please, if you would, as I read Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy as the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Light is a comforting thing. The absence of light, which is darkness, can be a little disconcerting from time to time. That's why little kids like having nightlights in their room. Um, In darkness, it's hard to see what's out there. That's why adults like having nightlights in their room. (laughs) So in the middle of the night, as you get up to use the restroom or grab a drink of water, whatever it may be, you know what's out there. Dark can be scary. Dark can lead to the unknown. Dark can cause distress or discomfort. But light, light is comforting. Light is revealing. Light guides and directs. Have you ever been outside just before the dawn when it is darkest? It really is. They make that statement, right? It's darkest right before the dawn. And it's dark. And you can barely see anything, but then all of a sudden, there's just a glimmer of light on the horizon. Whether it's uh, you're out hunting, maybe you're on your way to work, on your way to school here in the winter as the days get shorter. Perhaps the, the best dawn or sunrise I ever saw was when I was traveling to South Africa in college for a, a missions trip, and we had to fly from London to Johannesburg, and that's like a 13-hour flight, and we left at 7 p.m., and so you get on the flight, and it's already been kind of a crazy day of traveling, and I, I fell asleep before we even took off. But I remember waking up and asking somebody how much of our lo- flight was left, and they said, oh, about an hour. And they said, look out to the east, out the window. So I looked out, and there on the horizon, it's pitch black. Then all of a sudden, there's just a shade of blue, and then purple and then red and then orange all of a sudden then the sun's coming up watching the sunrise flying above the clouds at 30,000 feet was amazing because in the midst of all this darkness then all of a sudden it's just blindingly bright because there's the sun there's there's nothing almost between you and the sun and all of a sudden light filled the airplane and everyone's putting down their shutters because their eyes are accustomed to the dark but light shines and it's it's hard to miss and and it brings so much with it In Isaiah 9, Isaiah is prophesying again. And in the midst of darkness, he says, a great light has shone. A great light has made itself known. And those who have walked in darkness rejoice because the light has come. What is this light? Why is there rejoicing? Why were they in darkness? And that is... The question, they were in darkness because they were waiting for a savior, for the Messiah. To understand the context here of Isaiah 9, it really goes back to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 is this circumstance of King Ahaz. We looked at it last week. King Ahaz, a king of Judah of the southern two tribes, not a good king. He feared man more than he feared God. He put his hope in man rather than God and And God says through Isaiah, well, guess what? I'm going to give you a sign that though you are a failing king, one's going to come who's going to be the perfect king. And it's going to be brought about in a miraculous way through the birth of a son to a virgin. 
through Isaiah 7 and 8, this situation continues. And Isaiah explains and prophesies to Ahaz how there's going to be a coming Assyrian invasion. And the people are going to be overwhelmed and they're going to be, they're going to be oppressed. They're going to be shackled. They are going to uh, endure suffering. It'll be a time of darkness in the nation. God's people, in a sense, will be slaves. They will be persecuted. They will be oppressed. They will not have the freedom. They will be ruled by evil pagan leaders. But yet in the midst of that darkness, there is light. There is light that has been prophesied by Isaiah. We come to chapter 9. And Isaiah continues in his prophecy here. And in verses 2 through 7, he gives the character of this hope, of this light. It's not necessarily a thing, but it's a person. So just as it is dark before the dawn, but then the dawn comes and the light shines bright. The nation has been in darkness, is in darkness, as Isaiah writes and as he prophesies. But one day a light will come. And Isaiah speaks in such a way as that it's a present action, that this is happening. In his prophecy, he uses what grammarians call the prophetic present or the prophetic perfect, meaning he's speaking as if it's happening. It hasn't happened, but he's so sure that it's happening that he speaks that way, that this is what's going to happen. And he speaks, he prophesies, and he proclaims to the nation that light is on its way. Our big idea this morning from Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7 is this, is that the prophesied coming of the Messiah results in joys, excuse me, results in joy for those who have waited in darkness. The prophesied coming of the Messiah, this, this one we'll read about, results in joy for those who have waited in darkness. As we follow Isaiah's interaction here with Ahaz, we remember the darkness that the nation is under. But this light pierces the darkness by God's grace, which results in rejoicing. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great life. Who is this people? What's well, the nation? It's God's people. And they have walked in darkness, but they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Isaiah is using this picture of light and dark. And light is really interesting. It is used throughout all of Scripture. Go all the way back to the beginning, right? In the beginning, there is God. God said, let there be light. From the very beginning, God says, let there be light. And throughout the Old Testament, we have these instances of the idea of light, whether it's God leading, right? At night, God led the nation of Israel through the wilderness as a pillar of fire light. In the book of Psalms, how many times is the Lord referred to as light? Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And throughout the prophets, this idea of God being a light, it's always contrast, contrasted with, with darkness. This is, in a sense, revealing God's character. He is light. And then we come to John 1, in the beginning was with the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. And as we continue in that passage, he is a light 
to the people. In Luke 2, as we are in, in the beginning of Luke, when Jesus is taken to the temple and he meets Simeon and Anna, Simeon says that here is a, the, the Savior of Israel and he's going to be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. And as you make your way through the end of the scriptures to Revelation, and we come to the new heavens and the new earth, what does John say? John says there is no need for the sun because the light comes from the Lord who is there in their midst. This idea of light is throughout all of scripture. And here, this light is specifically referencing the coming Messiah. This light has shone in the darkness. And there is cause for rejoicing. He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He uses two illustrations to describe the rejoicing. The first is that you have multiplied the nation. Multiplied the nation, meaning there are more people being added to the nation. And how are more people being added to the nation? It's through births, <laughs> through babies being born. Uh, that is a sign of blessing to a nation, especially in this time in history. There were difficult things. There were circumstances that led to a decrease in the population rate, whether it was warring, whether it was lack of food and provision and just overall lack of safety and medical know-how. But here, there is reason for rejoicing because the Messiah has come. Rejoicing as like babies are being born. <laughs> that is a time of great blessing. And then he also uses the idea of harvest. They rejoice before you, verse 3, as, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. When they have a, a bumper crop, there's rejoicing. So Isaiah here is giving this prophecy and he says, there is rejoicing. Why? Because the light of the Messiah, the Messiah has, has come. And they rejoice. They rejoice as, as if a new baby was born, as a harvest was plentiful and abundant. This is the type of joy that it brings. It's a joy that is accompanied with life and provision and security and safety. They rejoice. And those who rejoice give thanks. They rejoice because they have walked in darkness, but now they've seen a great light. But what is the cause for their joy? We know what their joy is like. It's like the, the, the birthing and, and the new life of babies and a, an abundant harvest. But why? Why do they have this joy? Well, the light has has shown in the darkness. Why is that an important thing? There are three reasons here why those who have waited rejoice. Why those who have been in darkness rejoice when they see the prophesied Messiah coming. First is that gentleness will rule. As we look at verses 4 through 7, you'll see three indicators that'll be our three points. Verse 4 starts with the phrase for, or the word for. Verse 5, the word for. And verse 6, the word for. These are all uh, words giving reasons to why they are rejoicing. For this, for this, for this. So first off, they rejoice because gentleness will rule. 
gentleness will rule, or you could say oppression will disappear. Isaiah prophesies, he says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So Isaiah is speaking and the nation rejoices. Why? Because the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor. So the yoke is a, is a tool used to put over oxen at this time. And the yoke was uh, put on an oxen to pull a plow, to pull a wagon, an, another implement. It was something that communicated that the person who put the yoke on was in charge. Whether it was an oxen, another type of cattle, a horse, um, they put the yoke on so it would mean work for them. It's a sign of, in a sense, control. And then he talks about the staff of his shoulder. That staff is the idea of guidance or direction. Think of Psalm 23. Your rod and your staff, they come from me. The staff was used by a shepherd to guide and direct the sheep. It wasn't necessarily an instrument of correction. We'll get to that. It's the rod. But the staff was one that would the shepherd would use to guide and to direct and direct where he wanted them to go. It was leadership, guidance. And then third, the rod of his oppressor. The rod was basically a club, a stick uh, that was used specifically to ward off enemies or to inflict punishment or discipline. The shepherd would use it to fight off wild animals. It's an idea of discipline. In Proverbs, the idea of sparing the rod from a child. It's the idea of discipline, of correction. But here, these terms are used in a negative sense because they describe the oppressor of the nation, of Judah. The yoke that was put upon Judah, his burden, the staff which was directing him and in charge of him, and the rod which was used to inflict punishment or pain upon him, they have been broken. They've been broken. The end of verse 4, you have broken as on the day of Midian. They are rejoicing because when the Messiah comes, those who have been oppressing them will be done away with. Oppression will disappear. That phrase happens in one of our Christmas songs, all oppression will cease because the nations that have exiled Judah, that have put their Uh, power over them have really inflicted punishment and pain and difficulty upon them. But here we see it thrown off. And Isaiah uses an historical incident to remind them of what it's like. He says, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Midian, the Midianites, which were one of the enemies of the nation of Israel. Does anybody know of which judge fought the Midianites in the book of Judges? Gideon. Gideon and his 300 men fought the Midianites, destroyed them. And as we read that story uh, in Judges 6 through 8, Gideon was not necessarily the most man full of faith and and excitement and, yes, Lord, I'm going to do this. He's more like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm hiding in the wine press. Lord, you need to show me with the fleece. And, okay, just kidding, I want you to show me again. And, And he gathered all these men, and then the Lord said, no, 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 just just these few men. The ones who drink funny, we're going to use those. And, and you're going to use a trumpet and pitchers and 
and torches, and that's all you need. And Gideon has an amazing victory over the Midianites. But who provides the victory? Ultimately, the Lord does. The Lord does, but he uses Gideon. But in that reminder, Isaiah is demonstrating to those who are listening to him here that just as improbable as Gideon's victory over the Midianites was, so is this Messiah's victory. This Messiah's victory in the midst of oppression and power and strength being shown by those who are oppressing the nation, here is one who will secure victory. One will throw off the yoke, throw off the staff, break the rod. Gentleness will rule. Oppression will disappear. And there's this contrast here. And we read about it in Matthew chapter 11. It's why we read that this morning. When Jesus says this, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The contrast, the oppressing yoke is heavy and painful and is, is demonstrated by oppression while the yoke that Jesus asks us to bear is light. It is easy for he is gentle and lowly. This demonstrates Again, that the rule of the Messiah will not be by force, but rather through gentleness and humility. They rejoice for the Lord has freed them from the oppression over them. But this freedom has not led to a new cruel king, but rather one who rules with gentleness and kindness. So gentleness will rule. Oppression will disappear. That is one reason for the rejoicing. The second reason is that warring will cease. Verse 5, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What Isaiah does here is he uses uh, an argument for the lesser to the greater. You might expect Isaiah to say every shield and sword was broken and done away with. But the complete absence of war in the mind of Isaiah here even leads to the destruction of, in a sense, the uniforms that soldiers would need to wear the boots of the warrior, and the garment that is rolled in blood. Even those basic things that even necessarily aren't instruments of warfare themselves but accompany it are even done away with. There will be not even a hint of warfare left. They are burned as fuel for the fire. Think of this. Warring will cease. Warring or conflict has been at the very center of humanity since the very beginning. Cain and Abel, just a few chapters into Genesis. You think of Abraham and his relations. You think of Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his brothers and then the Israelites and the Egyptians and all the other Midianites and ites that they fought during the time of Joshua and Judges and then the Philistines and warring just in the nation of Israel was constant. Then you take a step back and look at the world. The conflict that was there, whether it was between individuals or family groups or communities or nationalities or even religious groups, warring has been part and parcel to this world as anything else. But yet, when the Messiah comes, every boot, every garment, even 
In a sense, the fatigues of every shoulder, shoulder, uh, soldier will be burned as fuel for the fire. It's a complete doing away with war. God will overthrow the oppressor. But what's even more amazing is that he will not accomplish it with more war, but rather through the doing away with of war. Yes, we read Revelation and we read of how the Lord comes on a horse and there are battles, but yet the Lord, I don't think it's not going to be a battle like, oh no, who's going to win? It's pretty clear the Lord's going to win and he's going to dispense judgment and warring will cease. When the Messiah comes the desire of everyone afflicted by warfare, that desire is peace. And it is in complete contrast to what the world describes as power or authority and how they normally seek to attain it. It is thwarted, turned upside down, done away with by God through peace. You could think back throughout history how different dictators have taken power and they've done so by force. The Lord comes in and he demonstrates complete control, but yet without, in a sense, the use of force. He does not need war or tanks, or soldiers to keep his rule in place. They rejoice, for warring will cease. And number three, they rejoice ultimately because peace will prevail. Peace will prevail. And this is perhaps the most well-known passage here from Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Again, we see this language here of a child This child is born. To us, a son is given. Isaiah is not referencing here a grown man. He's he's referencing a a child, which is really interesting because you generally don't put a child in charge of a nation. It's happened from time to time, but generally, that's not how it works. We were working our way through uh, one of our Advent things we're doing new this year at Jesse Tree with different ornaments and different things. Uh, Each ornament has a a verse that goes with it talking about how Jesus has come and is fulfilling these things. And and one of them was talking about Josiah, good King Josiah. And we were talking to to Ezra and said, Josiah was a little boy and he became king and his eyes got really big. Like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. (laughs) It's like, but that usually isn't how it works. But the amazing thing is here, the reference that Isaiah is using is that this leader, this Messiah, this this chosen king is, in a sense, a child. It's the contrast. This is what God does. The world says, no, you need to have power and strength and might through oppression, through war, through demonstrating your physical prowess, through, through having all these things. But yet here is God saying, no, to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. It's the idea of humility, of meekness, of gentleness, that this one will be the one who leads. For the government shall be upon his shoulder. So here we see the references to a king. And this is all flying in the face of Ahaz. Remember, that that's the context. Because here's King Ahaz, a king in the line of David who's failing, who's a, a failure of a king. But here Isaiah says there's going to be a king who's going to come. He's going to be born as a child And he's going to fulfill all these things like you should have Ahaz, but you didn't. And this is what he is like. He is a wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Sometimes you hear those phrases split up. 
He is wonderful. Counselor. No, those two phrases go together. Wonderful uh, is, is an adjective that describes the noun counselor. You could translate it as he is a wonder of a counselor. He is a wonder of a counselor. Wisdom, understanding, and truth accompany him. He is a, a king who is full of wisdom. So much so that it's clear that the source of this wisdom is divine. It goes beyond being merely human. He is a wonderful counselor. He is a mighty God, secondly. There is no hiding the fact here that this child somehow is divine. Because you don't just call a king mighty God in the nation of Israel without having to answer for it. You don't call anybody God unless you mean that he is God. That would be blasphemy. So here Isaiah is clearly communicating that this child is God. He is mighty God. He is powerful and strong just as God is. And in being a mighty God, he is mighty enough to overcome any evil that can be thrown at him. One commentator said this. I love this phrase. This king will have God's true might about him, power so great that it can absorb all the evil which can be hurled at him until none is left to hurl. He is a mighty God, and he is a everlasting father. Now, I always heard this, and I thought, wait a minute. Jesus is the son of God. How can he be the everlasting father? Because there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, three in one, one in three, co-equal, co-eternal. They're all God. They're all separate, distinct persons, but yet they're one God. So how can Jesus, the, the Messiah, the one who is Isaiah is talking about, how can he be the everlasting father? Well, my questions were answered as I studied this out this week, is that that term father has been, uh, the connotation within this understanding is the king of Israel was often referred to as father or as the one who gave leadership or talked or controlled, just like in a family, right? The father is the, the leader in the home. And here the king is the leader of the nation. He is the everlasting father. And this father is no different. But what sets this father apart from the other kings of Israel is that he is an everlasting father. There is no end to his rule or reign. There is no end to his dominion. Again, demonstrating the deity of this individual. And lastly here, he is the prince of peace. The prince of peace. Jesus, being the fulfillment of this prophecy as we understand it, he is the prince of peace. One author said this, he is a peaceful king, one who comes in peace and one who established peace, not by a brutal squashing of all defiance, but by means of a transparent vulnerability which makes defiance pointless. Somehow through him will come the reconciliation between God and man that will then make possible reconciliation between man and man. Jesus is the prince of peace. Not only is he peace himself, and not only does he bring peace in the sense of human relationships, but he brings peace with God. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Prince of Peace in that not only does he bring peace to the nations, but he himself is our peace. We can have peace with God because of Jesus. He himself, there's such a foreshadowing here of so much theology 
Jesus being the Prince of Peace. He is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, a Prince of Peace. And the amazing thing is that he is, as we see here, the king who is going to fulfill the promise to David. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace will be no end, meaning his rule, his reign, his nation will not end. You can look throughout history, and there are many, many powerful nations, and they've always come to an end. Or they've morphed, or they've been taken over by someone else. Think of the Roman Empire. That's done away with. Think of the Ottoman Empire, done away with. Great Genghis Khan and his Mongol horde that ruled from uh, Eastern Europe all the way to China, done away with. Alexander the Great and his, his rule, Persia, Babylon, all these amazing, amazing, powerful nations that did such historical things, but yet they've come to an end. But here we read that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Why? Because on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he is on the throne of David. This is the fulfillment of the promise to David that one of his descendants will rule and reign forever on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This Messiah, this King of kings is coming and he's going to bring peace. He's going to do away with oppression. He's going to end war and he's going to rule and reign forever. This is the king that we would all love to follow. And this is the king that we are all invited to bow before. The king of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And I love this last phrase. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is not passive or indifferent to this promise. Somebody might say, I'll do that, don't worry. You can ask my wife about that when I say that about things. I'll get around to it, it's okay, <laughs> I'll do it. Sometimes my zeal is behind it, I'm gonna do it. Many times my zeal is not behind it. Or, oh yeah, I need to be reminded of it. This phrase, the zeal of the horse will do it, uh, means that God in all of his passion and desire and ability is going to carry this out. This is not an add-on to God's to-do list, but rather it's his zealous focus to bring this about. The zeal of the Lord. This is God's plan. This is God's desire. This is what God is all about, and this is what he's going to do. And do you know what the amazing thing is? He has done it. Now reading this, we think, well, a child has been born, and a son has been given, and, and he's done some of this, but yet... It's not fully complete. And we understand this with prophecy in the Old Testament. Isaiah, as he prophesied, was shown this picture of, of this one who's going to come, but yet he didn't have the, the, the full 3D picture in a sense of the, the first advent and then the, the second advent of Christ. So as Christ has come and has instituted some of these things, there's going to be a full consummation of this when Christ returns. And we read of that in Revelation, and in the rest of Isaiah, how Isaiah describes this kingdom of this king, how it is full of peace 
and blessing and prosperity and the reversal of sin and the curse. One day, all of this will come to pass perfectly. Isaiah concludes this prophecy again with the reminder that the Lord will do it. O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O come, God with us. We sang that this morning, and that song is a wonderful reminder of these truths. With the coming of Emmanuel, we have peace ultimately with God. But yet, as we look into the future, we understand that there will be ultimate peace even between man. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Redeem us. Save us. Make the wrong right, the crooked straight, the rough smooth. And through this prophecy, we are reminded of how Jesus fulfilled these things. How they are completely contrary to the way of the world and how they are brought about by God's work and God's work alone. So what do we do in light of this? Do we just sing the songs and give thanks every 12 months when we celebrate the birth of Jesus? No, we reflect on what God is doing in Christ and how in Christ he has provided for us the Prince of Peace. And as he is our king, are we serving him as king? Are we serving him as the one who is sovereign over our lives? Are we pointing others to this king that one day he's going to come back and completely fulfill all of this promise? To fully end wars, to put an end to strife and oppression, and to bring in the consummation of his kingdom that will have no end. As you look at the world around us, it is full of spiritual darkness. And at times we can throw up our hands as believers in Jesus Christ and say, what's the point? What's the point? But this should remind us, in the midst of darkness, a light has shone. And ultimately, this light is not a thing this light is not a commodity. This light is not a thought or a way of thinking. This light is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So what is the light that we have to shine in the darkness? It's Jesus. So this Christmas season, as we reflect and as we rejoice, and as we think of Christ's first advent, which causes us to think of his second coming, May we shine the light that is Jesus Christ in the midst of a dark world that is still longing to see. And may we rejoice knowing that he's, as he's come once, he's coming again. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the reminder of your word or the coming of Christ and again of his second coming, of the light that he brings Lord, and the joy and the peace and the freedom and the gentleness and the end of oppression and war and all of these things that accompany him. Lord, I pray that we'd be faithful in shining a light, shining Jesus in a dark world around us. Lord, we give thanks. Give thanks for the gift of your son. Lord, help us to realize that he is the one we have now and we will have forever. It's in his name we pray. Amen.